Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of life, the things that make sounds, which as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will be just speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he's a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Amen. Let's bow our heads together as we thank God for his word this morning. Well, Father, when we come to a chapter like this, quite frankly, I come in weakness and in humility and much trembling. And God, you have promised that those who you turn your face to, a signal of your blessing and favor and the giving of your help, are those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at your word. At the very least, God, I am trembling because this chapter is difficult to understand and so then could be difficult to preach. So what I would simply ask this morning is that I would be given the grace to say what only the text says for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the strengthening of his church, and the good of all people. And for Jesus' sake, I would ask these things. Amen. Excuse me. Let me begin by making a few disclaimers, which this might be the first time I've ever done this, but I need to do it. First of all, a sermon um, like this is going to be very hard for the half-hearted or half-asleep to pay attention to, okay? So if you're already there, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do this morning to get you out of that trance, so just keep that in mind. On the other side of that, if we approach this chapter with any kind of um, undue dogmatism, then it might be proven to be troubling to us as we kind of expound the text, because the only way that you can approach a text like this is to do what we've always done since we've been together, and that is take them at their plain face meaning and to expound the text exactly as it is, exactly in the context where we find it. That's why expository preaching is so important because it doesn't serve you well when you just parachute into a text. And then verse by verse, setting aside any prejudices that I might have or being made fearful of any concerns that you might have, we'll just go through it as best we can, okay? So, with that being said, let's begin. Behind everything that's being said in the chapter is this basic question. What is the evidence of a spiritual man? 
What is the evidence of a spiritual woman? What does it truly mean to be a pneumaticos, spiritual? Okay? What is a spirit-filled Christian? What is a spirit-filled church? And that question, when answered correctly, will make a church increasingly useful. When answered wrongly, will make a church confused, in dispute, and increasingly useless. And of course, we do not have to wonder about the answer to that question because God through the pen of Paul has already given us that answer foundationally in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. In chapter 12, specifically verses 3 and following, you might want to turn back just to make sure I'm telling you the truth. Real spirituality, God's word says, is the power of the indwelling spirit which enables the Christian to say by lip and by life, Jesus is Lord. And then in the exercising of their spiritual gifts in the local church. In other words, the Holy Spirit, day one of a Christian's conversion, gives the Christian power to live under the rule of Christ. Power to exercise their gifts, to build up the church of Christ, placing them in the high privileged state of being under the reign or the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, His teachings become our teachings. His commands become our commands. And then we increasingly make our life more under that framework. Different paces to be sure, but still headed that way. Why? Because no one can say Jesus is Lord and really mean it and therefore really reveal it and therefore be spiritual except by the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we learn that genuine spirituality is, is in our practice of the kind of love that Paul has given us here in those verses. Love is a work of the Spirit. Love is a gift of the Spirit to all Christians so that this love can be practiced and applied ever-growing in the genuine Christian's life. Consequently, listen carefully now, where you find this 1 Corinthians 13 love, there you find spirituality. Question. What does it mean to be spiritual? Answer, to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. John writes that Jesus was filled with the Spirit without limit. To live like Jesus lived. The Father's glory, His supreme concern. He offered forgiveness time and time again to others and the building up of His church by the giving of His life, His duty. To live like Jesus lived. Okay? And then to love like Jesus loved. This is a stout self-denying, self-abnegating, well-mannered, I am not quitting you kind of love described for us here in chapter 13. So you see, loved ones, the primary role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is not to make us jump up and down. It's to bear witness to Jesus Christ and to equip the church as that witness for Christ so that in everything, Colossians 1.18, everything, Everything Jesus Christ might have supremacy, first place. And when Jesus Christ has that preeminence and supremacy, there you have spirituality. There you have spirituality. So this is foundational. Now what happens is, sometimes we come to the Bible with a predetermination, a made-up mind, or a misguided mind, and we begin to map out our own answer to the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? So, it's not in the exercising of of our gifts, building up the local church. It's not in loving like Christ's love, that self-giving love in Christ, in the church. And it's not living like Christ lived, the self-denial that it calls for in this existence as we have it, which builds up the church and certainly draws attention to the church. 
but it's something else that we've decided altogether. Now, we could go off on a rabbit's trail. We're not, but there could be all kinds of things that people say, when you do this, or when you experience this, or when you have this, then you are spiritual. And they would be wrong. And what was happening in Corinth was that they had made up their own definition of what spirituality was. In fact, their own context served to drive them to this because they make the, made the classic uh, mistake of letting, of letting the world dictate their worship. Pagan temples were all around in Corinth. And there were people in those temples who, in order to connect with the gods in a high, holy, you know, and super special way, spoke in these kind of ecstatic utterances. They spoke in strange tongues. Therefore, in the Corinthian case, in seeking to answer the question, what is spirituality, they'd come to the conclusion that one of the key characteristics, if not the characteristics, whereby a person could tell of themselves and be measured by others in their spirituality would be the presence of this kind of uh, ecstatic speech. And in the way they practice it in particular in the Corinthian church in public worship. And so tongues, the way that they were practicing it to them was the sign that they had reached the apex of spirituality. That it don't get no better than that. Which is why at the very heart of chapter 14, if your Bible's open, you'll see this. I mean, right the middle verse, verse 20, Paul says to them, you guys have got to grow up in your thinking. Verse 20, stop thinking like children. And in that, again, we're not left to determine on our own what thinking like children means. Paul Paul had already told us this, chapter 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I talked, thought, and reasoned like a child. Reason like a child, the Greek word gives the idea that their rationale always began with themselves first. Which, and not to be unkind to children, but that's a dominating bent of most kids. They have to learn how to grow past that. So in Corinth, it was always first themselves in their mind all the time, individually. They were at the center of their universe. They hadn't got past, if you would, their terrible twos in their spiritual maturity. They reasoned like a child. They thought like a child. Their personal opinions were parceled out as gospel truth, and they took their personal thinking, unchallenged by the Word of God, and put it into action, into the church, and if they were challenged, and if they were corrected, they would do what we do at our house. I'm going to tell mom, right? Or they would pick up all their toys and leave. The result then, they talked, they thought, they used their gifts like little children. Prattle, insignificant nonsense. Baby talk, baby thinking. Baby talk. You mean like tongues? Well, okay, yeah, in the way that they were practicing it in the church, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Because tongues, and the way that the church was exercising it, was clearly wrong. It was clearly selfish. It was clearly helping no others in the church except that one individual. Hence, and you probably picked this up when we read through the chapter, there's a massive correction going on here. So I want you to see how this all comes together. If you have a worldly, immature church, you can guarantee that that church will not be filled with the Spirit, but it'll be filled with people with eyes, right? I think, I want, I need, I'm spiritual only because I, as in the case of Corinth, because I speak in tongues. And Paul has to tell them, verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue 
edifies themselves and not the church, which takes us again right back to the baby talk and the baby thinking and the baby reasoning. And at the core of their use of this gift of tongues was what? Only the individual practicing that gift was being edified by that gift, which goes against the very nature of why spiritual gifts are given in the first place. Now, that being said, okay, let me suggest to you two keys to this chapter. The first is Paul's stress on edification, right? And edification is a fancy word for uh, building each other up, right? Building up other people, specifically the church. So if your Bible's open, you saw that in verse 4 at the end there. Verse 5b, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Verse 12, you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit. Terrific. Try to excel in those gifts. That what? Build up, edify the church. Same Greek word. Verse 17, again, same Greek word. You're giving thanks well enough in your use of tongues, but no one else is edified. And what Paul is carefully stressing here is this. If the people of God are going to be built up, then instruction which is intelligible needs to be provided and it needs to be central in the church. So if that church in Corinth was going to be built up, and surely it needed to be, it had moral confusion, it had doctrinal confusion, they make a hash out of public worship, it had life in it, yeah, that was good, but some of the life was cancerous, which was producing kind of like sickly offsprings in the church and creating chaos. So Paul says, if you're going to be built up, it's not in the paranormal, it's not in the extraordinary, it's not in in, in speaking unintelligible words, but it's imperative, dear one, that you have intelligible instruction, even as you edify each other in the use of your gifts. That's the one thing. And the other thing might be just as important, because I think what's going on here, and this is just personal opinion, it's particularly in the last 50 or 60 years, is magicians do this, right? Magicians say, look over here, and they get you looking over there, so that what they're doing over there, you don't see, so that when they go, ta-da, you're like, how do they do that? Because you were looking over here, and you weren't looking over there. I think what was happening is this. I mean, this is all, everybody comes to 14, tongues, prophecy, tongues, prophecy, tongues, prophecy. Look over here, look over here. All the while, the evil one says, I don't want you to learn a thing about edification and building up the church. And I don't want you to learn a thing about how important your local assemblies are. So everybody gets mad about prophecy, mad about tongues, while the whole thing and the main and plain thing is being ignored. So stay with me. Paul is making it very, very clear in the context of public worship, which is clearly the context here. He's making it plain that the point of everything in public worship is not your personal experience, especially in the spirit as it was in Corinth. But the point of everything in public worship is the building up of the people of God and the building up of the people around me as we worship together the living God. Now, loved ones, that is an essential element of what it means to come to to public worship, which means at least two things. One, On occasion, you'll speak with people who say, you know, I don't really feel like I need to come to public worship, or I don't want to come to public worship, or public worship for me is on a need-to-go basis. When I need to go, I'll go. Now, why do they say that? Well, they say that because they assume that the focus of coming to church for worship is only an individual focus, only to their advantage, right? This is the kind of thing where I'm here to get my battery charged up again. Okay, fine. 
But if that's true, let's think it through. Okay, let's say that's true, that it's only an individual focus. Let's think it through. So you bring a few hundred people together in worship. And according to that line of thinking, you have a few hundred different separate experiences of God in worship. So we come in and we expect to counter God individualistically and not congregationally. And if we think that, we can safely assume that it doesn't really matter to anybody else except ourselves whether we show up or not. Because the reason why we're showing up is to only get something for ourselves. Consequently, if we don't come, we're the only ones who miss out. Because we're the only ones who we think we're edifying, i.e. tongues. But Paul says, no, no, no. In public worship, which is our privilege and our responsibility, it's not that a few hundred people have an individual experience with God, but that it's, it's that a few hundred people encounter God, worship God together in such a way that it will build up edify all the other people around me. That's why, loved ones, and listen carefully, that's why the way that we sing matters. That's why the way in which we greet each other matters. That's why the way in which we listen to the word being preached matters. That's why how we decide if we're going to come here on a Sunday morning matters so greatly. Because None of us live to ourselves and none of us dies to ourselves. Like it or not, as the body of Christ, our life is united together. It's the union of Jesus Christ and expressed perfectly Sunday morning by Sunday morning by imperfect people beginning with myself. So, so just think with me. That poor thinking could be the reason why like, I only do Bible studies and I only do Sunday morning Bible studies or I only do like Wednesday night stuff because I only want to get something out of it for myself. Forgetting that when we come together like this, we are doing it for the glory of God. We're building each other up and we're doing what God would have us do to declare to the watching world that God is great and Jesus is Lord and that he's coming back again. I probably use this story too often, but it's always on my mind. When we're here on a Sunday morning and all the cars are parked there, a little Jimmy's in his truck with his dad and his dad drives by the church and little Jimmy says, Dad, why are they doing what they're doing? What's going on in there? Well, they're worshiping God. They're worshiping Jesus. And little Jimmy says, Dad, why are we doing that? And then a whole conversation has to take place. Why? Because we chose to be here on the Lord's Day and do what Christians have done from generation to generation to generation. Together, together as one in Christ. So you see, this is foundational to our understanding of this chapter. Is what I'm doing in the church edifying to other people in the church? Is it building them up or is it tearing them down or is it keeping things at a standstill, which is the same thing as tearing it down because only healthy things grow? Okay. Now, the fact that Paul uses the whole chapter to explain two gifts should make us understand that, that um, public worship is necessary. It's not secondary. That it's not individual, but it's congregational. It should also tell us that public worship is theological, and not personal, because we're getting the mind of God through the pen of Paul in this chapter. There's a correction that the church needs, and it is a theological correction. It's changing the way they think. Some in the church in Corinth were claiming that the tongue's form of prophecy was more spiritual and therefore more helpful, higher rank than the intelligent form of prophecy. They said spirituality is, oh, when you're feeling it, that unintelligible language in the church. Paul says, no, listen carefully. The real issue is understandability, it's intelligibility, and it's edification. So Paul takes their order and he reverses it. 
And he says, in this context, out of the two gifts, prophecy, tongues, clearly intelligible speech is better. Clearly prophecy is better. So Paul's not saying that prophecy is the greatest gift, right? He's not saying that. He's just comparing it to the two. And he says, this is the one that needs to be practiced in the assembly. This is the one that we should pray and ask God for. And so in that, then he gives a threefold imperative, which means this is a command to the church. This is apostolic injunction. This is what we yield to as believers in Christ. Follow the way of love. Okay, that's the first thing he says. The Greek word there is, has the idea of chase after love. Pursue it with a passionate commitment. The tense there is habitual in practice, which means it's not like a one-shot deal. Holy cow, I loved on Sunday. I got the rest of the week off. I don't have to love. Back in Sunday, I'll be loving again. It'll be great. Paul's not saying that. He said, make it your habit to love 1 Corinthians way. Pray it. Try to apply it. So that means, at least for our local body, every ministry opportunity, every response, every call of service, everything, what we do is we have this Christian love at the forefront of our mind in everything in the church. Follow the way of love as Paul gives us that definition in chapter 13. So, so far, so good, right? That's pretty straightforward. Second phrase, verse 1, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Now, we learned in chapter 12, verse 11, that God gives gifts to each one as he determines, okay? But the fact that God gives gifts to each one as he determines does not negate what Paul is saying here, that we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts. In other words, all Paul is telling the church is, listen, go to the Father and ask him for the gifts. Ask him for the gifts specifically that build up the local church, that build up the church. Father knows best. Father gives best. So you don't have to fear that we're going to get the wrong gift. Not at all. God will give what is right. Always. He doesn't make mistakes. Nor, and listen carefully, because typically immature Christians make the snake, we don't have to have some kind of crazy religious exploits to try to receive the gifts, you know, like a holy hoedown or whatever it is they do. We just need to sit or kneel and say, Father, I need gifts that build up your church. And you seek him in the path of love and for the good of the church because, because Jesus loves the church and he dies for the church. The greater gifts which build up the church will be poured out. Would you just ask yourself the question as we move along? When's the last time you prayed for gifts to build up the church? I mean, I had to do some repenting this week, personally, right? I know what I usually pray for, but I've been... <laughs> I was going to say, I've been getting down on praying for the gifts, and that's creepy, but I'm sorry. That's slang for I've been really praying hard for spiritual gifts for all of us. Sorry about that. Third directive <laughs> is that when we come asking, we should especially ask for the gift of prophecy, right? Paul says that pretty plainly, the last phrase in verse 1. Now, again, we have to understand this is in relation between, between prophecy and tongues. That's the context. Chapter 14, Paul tells us, pray for the gifts which are the superior ones, and clearly here it's prophecy. Okay, so that means we're going to have to define what prophecy is. Well, the gift of prophecy is not simply or only the gift of preaching. Now, many of us have been taught that, um, that prophecy is preaching. But if you say that, then you have a problem. So we're going we're gonna to think this through. Because if you say that prophecy is preaching only, then this is what you're going to have to say. Paul is telling the whole church, he wants the whole church to become preachers. 
right? I want men and women to all become preachers, which would forfeit what he says later on in the chapter, but also it would distort completely the body image he gives us in 12, right? The beautiful thing about the body of Christ is there's harmony and there's symmetry in the body. But if you had everybody being a preacher, you had this like one massive arm or one massive leg or one massive neck, and that would be weird, right? That's not church. Can you imagine having a church full of Joes? I can't even have an, can't imagine having a room full of Joes and I'm the only one in the room, right? That's silly. That's silly. So Paul's not saying that prophecy is only preaching here. That's not how God set up the church. And also, he's not telling us that anytime anybody wants to give vent to anything that they feel like is inspired, that you should just let it out. If every time we had a feeling or, or in our gut or something going on in our tummy and we think we, it's inspired and we need to let it out, then people around us should be very, very careful. Okay, so then what, Paul, what is he saying? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think he's saying. Prophecy, New Testament prophecy, is a word from the Lord, from the word of the Lord, through a member of the body, inspired by the Spirit, given to edify, to build up the rest of of the body. I'll say it again. Prophecy, New Testament, is a word from the Lord, from the word of the Lord, through a member of the body, inspired by the Spirit, given to edify and build up the rest of the body. So Paul says, eagerly desire, as a result of God's gifting in your life, to bring the truth of God to bear upon the fellowship in which we worship. Could it be teaching? Absolutely. But it could also be in the um, one another elements that are part of New Testament instruction. So that every one of us here can have a measure of a prophetic relationship with each other in this sense. So listen carefully. Someone comes up to you in the church and says, I need some advice. Uh, I have trouble with X. I- I'm, I'm got a real tough decision with Y we, and I'm and, um, having trouble with Z, whatever it is. And because we have this gift, and because we have a mature, working knowledge of the Scriptures, we are able, in that moment in time, to take a word of the Lord, from the word of the Lord, open our Bibles, apply it in order to help that person asking those critical questions. So listen carefully. We're not pulling words out of the air, divorced from the Bible. We're not saying things like, well, I really feel like God's telling me to tell you. No! We're taking the word of the Lord from the word of the Lord, Bibles wide open, and giving them eternal truth for their question in that moment, building them up with God's truth from God's word. Now, if you make prophecy then only preaching, then not only do you have a confused picture, but you make preaching the sole prerogative of spirituality, and clearly that's not the case. Clearly, The preacher is not the only one that is spiritual in the life of the church. And by the way, because we've got to keep thinking this through, isn't prophecy more than just foretelling? Isn't it also foretelling as in telling the future? Now stay with me. If God gives you the gift of prophecy, you can tell the future, right? Okay, so what can you tell about the future? Well... You can tell people, you can tell the non-Christian that you'll probably rub shoulders with tomorrow. You can tell them Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed to men once to die, but after that to face judgment. You can tell them 1 Peter 4.5. They'll have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when you give them the word of the Lord, from the word of the Lord, you have a proper prophetic ministry. And in that moment, they hear God's voice, if you would, through your voice. Because you're giving them biblical truth in submission to the scriptures, which will make them have to rethink the many wrong things they believe. Because sometimes people go, you know what? It's all going to be okay in the end. That's universalism. Everything will work out. Everybody's going to be fine. God is love. Everybody's going to be happy. No. Or everybody just dies, and then there's nothing after death. No. A word from the Lord, from the word of the Lord. That is prophecy proper. But (laughs) if you say, thus saith the Lord... Jesus is coming back on August 24th, 2016, which happens to be my daughter's birthday. Then they're just being a fool. And you need to run away. That's not how God works. And they probably have huge problems. Okay, now, from that threefold directive in verse 1, he gives then verses 2 to 5 some explanation. So Paul says, verse 2, anyone who speaks in tongue doesn't speak to men but to God. Right? The problem with tongues is unintelligibility. The man who speaks in tongue addresses not men, for no one understands a word he says but God. And so the mysteries that Paul refers there, which are being uttered by the person, it's a mystery even to the speaker. So the speaker of tongues presents a main and plain problem in the context of the wider church. No one understands what's being said. And Paul says, that's not good. good. Verse 3, those who prophesy speak to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now that makes good sense. If tongues is happening in the church, the speaker and listener have no idea what's being said. But if prophecy is happening, then everyone may be helped. Verse 4 then, Paul gives specific revelation. In other words, the church would not know this unless Paul told them this. Verse 4, a tongue speaker edifies only themselves. But he who prophesies, edifies, builds up the church. Now you'll notice that Paul does not vilify tongues. He's just pointing out, since the benefit of it is only personal, that's way too small of a window for those who would take heart to the instruction of building up the church, loving the church, as in chapter 13. Why? Because love builds up, knowledge puffs up. So I might have something that makes me feel like the most spiritual person in northern Minnesota. But if it only benefits me, no matter what it is, and does nothing for those around me, and it doesn't build up the church, then that's fairy tale land. That's pretend world spirituality. So I want you to stay with me because you can take tongues and take it out and plug in something else that says, when I do this, I feel spiritual. When I exercise this, then I feel spiritual. It's not, if it's not what we learn in 12 and 13, then it is not spiritual. If it's not tied to the gospel in Christ, it is not spiritual. I don't care how many visions you've had and how many scenes or whatever, it doesn't matter. So Paul goes on, verse 5, I would like everyone to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now again, some in the church might have thought that Paul would just remove the gift altogether, but, he, but his concern is correction of the gift and the practice of the gift. His, his concern is intelligibility. It's application then and the place of speaking in tongues in the church he wants to reduce. It was elevated to priority and superiority and it should never have been. 
So he tells them. Now listen, not to make peace, but to be sensible. In fact, he's already told them in chapter 12, verse 30, not everyone speaks in tongues. So when he says what he says in verse 5, he's not saying that the model church would be a church where everybody's speaking in tongues. Any more than he would say that the model church is a church filled with celibates. Now, where did I get that from? That's chapter 7, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians. I wish that all men were, were as I am. Speaking of celibacy, which was the last time he used the phrase. So clearly, Paul wasn't saying there that the model church would be a church full of celibates. And so clearly, he's not saying that the model church would be a church full of tongue speakers. His point is pretty straightforward in verse 5. He would rather have them prophesy. He'd rather have them prophesy because everybody will be helped when they do that unless later on the tongues is interpreted. So to point that out, he gives a pretty simple illustration. Do you see that in verse 6? So that we won't be babbling, right? What good if nothing is understandable in public worship? What good is it? It's no good. He uses that example, a flute, a harp, and a trumpet. If I'm just blowing on the flute, my finger's flying everywhere, it's just a horrible noise. If I have a heart before me and all I'm doing is zing, 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 horrible noise. No one understands it. It's strange. The last few months I've had this dream. Seriously, I've had this dream that I'm playing up here with the worship team and I'm playing the guitar and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just acting like I'm, yeah, it's not very good. Wake up in cold sweats. The point is, it's just noise. What's the use? Distinctive notes played with clarity, that creates melody. Verse 8, if the trumpet is playing and it ain't playing, no one will know the call to arms. So this is what you need to know as we just draw this to a close. People were making up their own tunes in the church. They were making up their own melodies in the church. And they were using that as the telltale sign of spirituality. The striking thing is that Paul doesn't forbid the practice. He just corrects their use of the practice. So having used that illustration, he says in verse 9, So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? Do you see this? You'll just, just be speaking in the air. Verse 10, Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, And the speaker is a foreigner to me. And then he says, so it is with you. So it is with you. If you've ever been to uh, Disney World in Florida, you'll know that when you arrive, there are all manners of languages being spoken. Most of them you don't understand. You sit and look at them, and they sit and look at you, and it's like crazy talk, right? They're like, sounds like Babel to me. And to them, sounds like Babel to them. That's what Paul is saying. In the practice of this gift. And you know, you could use this for any gift if, if the gift is only used for self-edification. But in the practice of this gift, you're like a foreigner. You're not a brother and sister. Foreigner in the sense that in the church, in the assembly, you are only building yourself up, which is foreign to the Christian in the church. So he says, verse 12, so it is with you. And the section ends then, I think, with a very rational, sane statement, right? I know you want to know God. He doesn't let the hammer down, as it were. I know you want to know God. I know you want his fullness. I know that you want to be spiritual. Terrific. I know this. 
So he says, when you go to pray to God, ask him for the gifts which build up the church, the local church, because that's the context. Final application. We should ask ourselves this question. Has my attendance in worship among the people of God this morning inclined towards their edification? Is there something I said? Is there a prayer that I offered? A ear that I offered? A hand that I shook? The way I sang? The way I listened? The way I worshiped? Was it something that I did which makes it more possible for people to be built up, the church to grow up and grow out, and even helps that person face another Monday morning in that big old bad world. So by God's grace, may every one of us be able to say in the middle of the Lord's day, yes, with the help of God, we have done so. Then says Paul, okay, there you go. You are on track for spirituality. You don't need to go to Timbuktu to be spiritual. You can do it right here in the local assembly in this plain old place, spirituality. And if, you, and if you can't say that today, well, you're going to have time after church to be edifying and Lord willing, you're going to have another go at it next Sunday morning. Good? Good. I'll be around if you have any questions, okay? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you that clearly you love the church of Jesus Christ. The church is the visible representation of the body, the precious body of Jesus to the world. And clearly, the mission of the church is the mission of Jesus. In self-giving love, remind and tell the watching world that time is short, the end is soon, and that only people who come to Jesus by repentance and faith can be made new, can be made children of God, and live forever in the next world, which is perfect and perpetual and peaceful. So, Father, please... For Jesus' sake, we would just begin anew, give us each the gifts, the spiritual gifts, which build up the precious body of Jesus Christ in this local place. And Father, may you bless your people richly and deeply this day, for your son's sake, amen.